How many of you got to see Charlie Brown Christmas this week? Oh. You missed it. Missed yeah. it. Man, bummer. How many of you have seen it? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay, good. Um, that thing is 52 years old. It was done in 1965. And it's still great. I mean, I, I was doing dishes in the kitchen, and I, it came on, and I just sat down and watched the whole thing. And it was so much fun. I thought, this thing is so awesome. Charles Schultz put that together, the author of the, the Snoopy cartoons, and... Uh, just did a, a great job. You, you remember what's going on there. Charlie Brown is wrestling with what Christmas is about and struggling with all the materialism. He, Snoopy, even his dog, has kind of decorated his house and won an award. And uh, Lucy comes along and, and talks him into directing the Christmas play. And finally, Charlie reluctantly agrees to, to do it. And that's the scene when he shows up for the rehearsal. They decide that uh, they need a Christmas tree to be on the stage for the Christmas play. So Charlie and Linus go to the Christmas tree lot and they get a Christmas tree. But it's this, just this little scraggly stick of a tree. And uh, um, they bring it back. And when they do, Linus, Linus, uh, Lucy and, and Snoopy and, and all the girls just start laughing at, at Charlie Brown. And he's so exasperated. Nothing he does turns out right. And, and he finally says, does anybody know what Christmas is about? And Linus says, I do. And he, uh, he walks onto stage and the theater gets dark and there's this spotlight. And Linus begins to read from Luke chapter 2, the annunciation of the angels to the shepherds about the coming of the Christ child. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but uh, Linus begins to read, and when the angel says, fear not, Linus drops his security blanket. It's the only time Linus doesn't hold on to his, 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 his blanket. And you remember at the end of that passage, it sa says this, and he reads it, suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. Well, Linus uh, picks up his blanket and he heads off stage and he walks over to, to Charlie Brown and he says to him very gently, that's what Christmas is about, Charlie Brown. It's so good. That is what Christmas is about. The coming of this child who's going to bring peace on earth. We're in the midst of a series that is looking at the meaning behind the Advent candles. Um, the Advent candle wreath was actually invented by a man named Johann Heinrich Wickern. He, he was a German missionary that was actually working with the urban poor, and he started a school for kids uh, uh, from the inner city, urban poor, and as it was getting near Christmas, they kept asking him, is Christmas here, is Christmas here, is Christmas here? So he went out and he, he found an old wheel from a cart and he got 24 red candles and four white candles and he made the first Christmas uh, Advent wreath. Um, and he gave candles meaning. So every day the kids would light one of the candles and he would explain a little more about Advent, about what Christmas was all about. And then over time, those four candles became associated with certain words. Um, hope, peace, 
Love, joy are the most common ones. And we thought, you know, the purpose of that first Advent read was to help people understand what Christmas is all about. And we thought, you know, if we take some time to explore those four candles and the words behind them, we'd walk away with a pretty good understanding of what Christmas is all about. So this morning, we're going to focus in on the peace candle and explore what that really means. Let's pray. Father, we invite your spirit to be present this morning. And not simply to be present, but be present in us. That you might open our hearts and our minds to understanding your world better and understanding you better. Um, Father, we want to be people who do a great job of loving you and living out your calling on our lives. Would you use this morning to help us make that happen? Um, We lay our lives before you. We pray this in the name of our King and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. We're going to do a, a, a few things this morning. First, we want to wrestle with what, what does peace on earth mean? When the angels show up and say that, what, what are they talking about? So we want to explore that a little bit. And then we want to look at two realities that sometimes we miss, that we need to understand and wrestle with a bit to understand this notion of peace on earth. And then at the end, we want to wrestle with the question of so, so what? And then we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning as part of entering into this notion of of peace. So... What does peace on earth mean? What, what, what is it that the angels were talking about that day when they were proclaiming that to the shepherds? I think we come across that word peace and we see it so often at Christmas and we like that word because it, it, it has some nostalgia to us and, and it just, we fall into this, this notion that, you know, what, what the angels were really talking about is kind of an internal peace, a kind of a psychological peace. And we like that because in some ways that makes Christmas a little bit smaller and manageable and it allows us to focus on family and friends and gifts and traditions and all that goes with that. And you know, all that stuff's great. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, As long as we don't forget the bigger picture of what Christmas is. But in this text, when the angels talk about peace on earth, that I don't think it has much to do with this kind of inner peace. That's not what he's talking about. So we go to the other extreme and we think, well, peace means the end of hostilities, the end of strife. He must be talking about kind of political peace, international peace, uh, the end of war. And there's some truth to that. But quite honestly, I think there's something more going on here than e- even that. I think you have to remember that when the angels show up, they're speaking to, to shepherds who are Jewish, who speak uh, Hebrew. So when they hear this word peace, they hear the word, the Hebrew word for peace, which is shalom. And because of their background, they go back to the Old Testament. And I think we need to do that and kind of look at the roots of this notion, prince, this notion of peace in the Old Testament, where it comes from. And it comes from a phrase, prince of peace, which you find in Isaiah chapter 9. So I want to look at that passage for a moment. Historically, when Isaiah writes this, um, Israel is divided into 
a northern kingdom we call Samaria and a southern kingdom we call Judah. They've been warring together. And Judah that decides that rather than relying on God, they're going to seek political and military help from the Assyrians. And they do that. And they sow the wind and as a result they weep the whirlwind. Because when Assyria is done protecting them from Samaria, Assyria devastates Judah, turns on them. And uh, uh, takes numbers of them into captivity, destroys uh, their cities and plunders their cities, destroys the walls around their cities that offered them security, takes their leaders and their craftsmen and, and deports them, takes those who are of military age, kills them or, or imprisons them, devastates uh, uh, their culture, just tears it asunder, destroys their wealth. I mean, this, this is a dark moment. And it's into that darkness that Isaiah writes this, this prophecy that's kind of archetypal. It, 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 it is pointing towards uh, this moment in time where this Messiah figure comes. Uh, let's read it. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Verse 2, and then we're going to jump down to verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Um, in that day, when they gave you a title like that or a name like that, those titles and names were both descriptive of who you were, but prescriptive of what we were going to do. It's like when we call somebody lefty, we're describing something that's uh, real about them. They're left-handed, but it's, that's descriptive. But prescriptive, it's also saying this is how they're going to go through life. Of those titles, the one that we want to look at is the Prince of Peace. The, the Prince is the one who administrates or implements peace. He, that's descriptive of who he is. He's the peacemaker, but also prescriptive of what he's going to do. He's going to bring peace around. Uh, if we could go back to verse 7. He says, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So, so this, this, this Messiah King, this child, is going to bring peace. And the word here for peace is the Hebrew word shalom. And it's a very different kind of word its meaning than our word peace. So that's how we typically translate it. Shalom uh, at its heart means completeness or wholeness or harmony. And it's describing uh, 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 when everything is made right, when life begins to flourish, when everything becomes what it was intended to be. Uh, Shalom is this, this kind of utopia that, that the Jewish people look forward to. That's shalom. It's what they're waiting for. It's what the Messiah, the King, is going to bring about this hero. Um, Alvin Planija describes uh, the prophet's dream of shalom pretty well in this quote from his book. He said, they dreamed of a new age in which human crookedness would be straightened out. Rough places made plain. The foolish would be made wise and the wise 
humble. They dreamed of the time when the deserts would flower, the mountains would run with wine, weeping would cease, and people could go to sleep without weapons on their laps. People would work in peace and work to fruitful effect, and lambs could lie down with lions. All nature would be fruitful, benign, and filled with wonder upon wonder. All humans would be knit together in brotherhood and sisterhood. And all nature and all humankind would look to God, walk with God, lean toward God, and delight in God. Shouts of joy and recognition would well up from the valleys and the seas, from women in streets, and from men on ships. The webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight is what the Hebrew prophets call shalom. It's no wonder the angel said, glory to God, because this child is the prince of peace. He's the one who's going to bring shalom on earth, this, this time of flourishing, this time of wholeness and harmony and completeness, this, this moment when everything is made right. That's what peace means. Well, to really wrestle with that, though, there's a couple of realities I think we need to understand a little better. The, uh, the first is uh, that we live in the midst of a cosmic war. I, I mean, think about it. The only reason you need peace is if you're in the midst of hostility, right? The fact that he's going to bring peace means that in one sense there's not peace now. And that's right. We live in a world that's at war. Now when we think of the world, we typically think, yeah, the world's broken. The world's fallen. I think there's a tendency for us to stop there. We, we forget that not only is the world broken and fallen, but there's this cosmic battle going on. Uh, there's a myriad of agents, both human and angelic, that have sided either with God or against God, and they are, in a sense, fighting it out, and we're in the midst of that battle. And, and we need to develop a, a warfare mentality, a warfare worldview. Um, and typically, historically, that's been the intuitive worldview way of thinking for most cultures and most societies throughout history. Evil things would happen, and they would assume that there was always a spiritual dimension to, to the evil things that would happen, whether a plague came or people got, got uh, destroyed by an enemy or uh, someone got oppression, injustice. All, they saw a spiritual element to that. That was true until the Enlightenment and now in Western cultures, we are able to explain things so well that we kind of do away with the supernatural. And if a person gets sick, we know that it's because of a germ. But what we forget is that, yeah, it's because of a germ, but there may be a supernatural power or entity behind that germ that is using it for evil intent. We don't give much weight to that. We give lip service to the notion that there's a devil and there's a supernatural realm. But I'm not sure we wrestle with the fact that those spiritual entities are actually active in our lives. I mean, the New Testament, the biblical worldview says that the devil is the prince and the power of the air. That he's the one who has blinded unbelievers. That he's going around looking for whom he can devour. We're not exempt from that. 
just because we live in a culture that poo-poos it and wants to be totally materialistic, you know, if we're not careful, we become naturalistic and materialistic in how we view life and the supernatural moves away and we live in kind of only half of reality. I mean, notice what, what Paul writes in Ephesians 6. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Our struggle, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. And so often we think it is. You know, we look at what we're wrestling with in life and it all has to do with flesh and blood in this world the rational and what we can explain, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We live in a battle zone in the midst of a cosmic war. And at Christmas, when this child comes, he is entering into the midst of that cosmic fight. We uh, were in the book of Revelation preaching through it a while back, and I know it's kind of a strange book with all these weird visions and symbols and stuff. There are two passages that have had a profound impact on me uh, as we've wrestled through that book. One is in chapter 12, because in chapter 12 of the book of Revelation, you get heaven's perspective, a cosmic perspective on Christmas. In fact, uh, all the commentators agree that Revelation 12 is the birth of Jesus. Do you remember what's going on there? There's this woman who is pregnant, who is about to give birth. And that's the coming into this world of the child. And as she's about to give birth, there's this, this dragon, this red dragon with seven heads and this huge tail that is destroying parts of the earth. And he's waiting in front of the woman for her to give birth so that he can devour the kid. That's Christmas. Never seen it on a Christmas card, but I would love it. <laughs> but that's what's going on. The child is born and taken away. Why is the devil, Satan, so angry? Because he knows that this is the beginning of the end. Because the prince of peace who's going to put an end to the cosmic war has arrived. We live in the midst of a cosmic war. The second reality we have to wrestle with a little deeper than we normally do is simply what really happens, what is it that Jesus accomplishes on the cross? I mean, if I were to ask you this morning, why did Jesus die on the cross? You would tell me, and you'd be absolutely correct and theologically right, you would say Jesus died on the cross for our sins so that we could be forgiven. And that's true. The problem is we stop there. And we don't realize that actually there's something much, much, much bigger cosmic going on in the cross. And because that is going on in the cross, we actually can be forgiven of our sin. When Jesus goes to the cross, he is entering into battle and, and dealing a death blow to all of evil. He's defeating Satan, he's conquering death. He's doing, he's overcoming sin. He's putting asunder evil. There's this cosmic thing happening on the cross. And it's because he accomplishes that on the cross and through his resurrection that then we are forgiven. Now, I mean, look with me at Colossians chapter 2, 13 through 15. 
He says, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of the legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us. That's the first part. He forgives our sins. But notice that Paul doesn't stop there. He says, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having, and here's why, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made them a public spectacle of them triumphing them, over them by the cross. Amazing, isn't it? That on the cross, this cosmic thing is happening. So if those two realities are true and the Prince of Peace is coming to bring shalom, so what? Let me suggest two, two answers to that this morning. First, because of the Prince of Peace and what he's done on the cross, we have relational peace. Uh, we don't always think about this, but the truth is before we knew Jesus, we were hostile to God. We were enemies of God. We were not only alienated from him, and whether we thought about it or not, we, he was actually our enemy. We were going our own way. We wanted nothing to do with him, and he was angry at us. But Jesus comes into the midst of that and heals that brokenness so that we can be reconciled to God. Look at Romans chapter 5. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? A relational peace with God. Gordon MacDonald had given a lecture at a college and afterwards uh, uh, a woman from Africa came up to him and she just wanted to thank him for his lecture, tell him how meaningful it was. And they struck up a conversation and Gordon asked her name and she gave him her, her American name, it was Deborah or something like that. And he said, no, 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 what, what, what is your African name? And she smiled and she said her African name, it was many syllables and kind of had this lyrical tone to it. And he kind of chuckled and he says, okay, wh what does that mean? And she said, it means the child that takes the anger away. And he goes, who gave you that name? <laughs> and she said, uh, not my mother, my grandmother. And he asked why. And it seems that uh, when her mother was young, she fell in love with this woman's father. And uh, the families didn't want them to get married. But they decided to get married anyway. And when they did, that alienated them from the families. There was this hostility and anger, and, and they shunned them. And then this woman's mom became pregnant with this woman. And uh, when she was born... Her mom took her to her mom, the grandmother. And the grandmother held this child in her hands and gave her the name, the child that takes the anger away, because that child became the thing that reunited that family. I think that's a great name for Jesus. He's the child that takes the anger away so that we can know God. It gives us relational peace. The second thing that happens is we get restorative peace. This is the notion of shalom. 
that, that uh, Jesus on the cross brings about shalom, this, this flourishing of life, this what is eventually will be a utopia where things are perfect. And you say, well, Nick, if that is accomplished on the cross, if on the cross Satan is defeated, if on the cross death is put to death, if sin is put to asunder, if all evil is done away with, why is life such hell? I mean, if all that's done, we don't see it. And there's a bit of the already and not yet here. On the cross, Jesus deals a death blow to Satan and ends the cosmic war. But that reality hasn't come to fruition in its completeness yet. We get pieces of it. We get partial experience of it. We're in the already but the not yet. There is a day coming when Jesus returns, when all things are made right, where there are no more tears, there is no more pain, there'll be no more disease, no more cancer, no more discouragement, no more depression. No more evil done on humans by other humans. There will be a day when justice rolls down and oppression ends. And intolerance is done away with. There will be a day when the marginal are not marginal anymore. There will be a day when things are made right. And we experience shalom. You see, that's what that candle means. That this child is the prince of peace who comes into the world to make all things right with God and with all creation. We're going to mark this morning by celebrating the Lord's Supper or communion. Part of the reason we do that is... Communion is a way we shape our identity. We, we remind ourselves of who we are and what God has done for us. So as we take communion this morning, there, there are two things that I would really like you to reflect on that come out of what we've talked about this morning. And the first is this. I'd like us to reflect on the fact uh, that we're peacemakers. What does it mean to be a peacemaker? Matthew chapter 5 says this. It says, blessed are the peacemakers, or I like to say shalom makers, because that's what he's getting at, for they will be called children of God. He's saying that part of our spiritual genetic makeup is that we are people who are given a sphere in which we are to, to strive after shalom, to try to make things like they should be. And if we're going to do that, then in a sense, we have to live with a wartime mentality because when we're shalom makers, we're entering, we're entering into the cosmic struggle. The problem is, oftentimes, um, we shrink our faith down so we think it's just about us getting right with God and going to heaven when it's really about so much more than that. And instead of having a wartime mentality, we kind of develop a vacation mindset. You know, when you're on vacation, what do you like to do? You like to put all your problems away. You like to hang out and relax. You just like to enjoy life. It's all about being comfortable. That's how lots of us go through life. We're after the American dream. We're after making life as, as comfortable as it can be for us, getting self-fulfilled and taking it easy and, and enjoying life. We have a vacation mindset, but we really need a war time mentality. 
Yeah, it's kind of like you decide you want to go to, to vacation in France and you decide you want a vacation on the beach. So you go to the beach in Normandy and it's, it, it, it's June 5th and you're on the beach and it's 1944 and you're hanging out in your cottage and you think, oh, this is awesome. And then you get a knock at a door, the door, and, and it's a, an American captain and he says, um... Do you know what? Tomorrow is the invasion that's coming and, and uh, all hell is going to break loose <laughs> and we need your help. Would you say, well, I'm sorry, I'm on vacation. <laughs> I'm just here to, to, you know, put my problems aside and, and to enjoy life. No. You're called to something bigger, more challenging, better. We're living on the spiritual beach of Normandy and there's a war waging around us. We can't just be on vacation. What does it mean to be a shalom maker? And then the second thing I want you to reflect on is how is it that God will bring about ultimate shalom? You know, I said there were two passages in the book of Revelation that were really transformative as, I, as we wrestled through that book. One was chapter 12. The other was chapter 5. And I don't know if you remember what was going on in chapter 5. John is having this vision of heaven. And uh, uh, as he looks into heaven, they're bemoaning the fact that there's this scroll that has these seals. And there's nobody who can open the seals. And the seals and the scroll, the scroll represents the purposes of God. And if the seals can't be opened, then the purposes of God can't be played out. So John is weeping. And the question is being asked, who can open the scroll? And then he hears that the Lion of Judah, right? The Lion of Judah can open the scrolls. He's the one who can bring victory. He's the one who can end the cosmic war. He can enact the purpose of God, this, this lion that will tear everything apart. And then he turns, and what does he see? He sees this sacrificed lamb, this bloodied lamb on the throne. And suddenly you realize that God enacts shalom not by divine violence, but by sacrificial love. We're shalom makers not by our political might or by our coercion. We, come, we become shalom makers when we exercise sacrificial love. What is it we are called to do? We are called to love our neighbor. We are called to love the other. We are called to love our enemy. And that's transformative. At the end of the book of Revelation, when Jesus comes back on the white horse and the sword, you know, we think he's going to just commit mass genocide to all the evil, and that's how he's going to conquer. But that's the wrong image. That horse represents his victory. The victory is already there. And he's riding this horse, and his robe is bloodied. The battle hasn't taken place. The blood is of those people that, that we think are going to be decimated. The blood is his own. And the sword isn't in his hand. The sword is coming out of his mouth. It's this picture that he has the right to bring about judgment. And you begin to understand that he is going to bring about shalom, not by violence, but through his sacrificial love. Life will be made right because of what he has done and accomplished on the cross. 
And it's that that we mark when we participate in communion. You're going to take a piece of bread that represents his body. You're going to dip it in a cup that represents his blood. And you're going to partake in that. And as you do, you're proclaiming what Christ has done on the cross. And as you eat it, you're proclaiming that that is part of who you are. Your identity is in him. And that's your calling in life. So take a few moments to reflect and think. And then when you're ready, make your way to one of the stations and proclaim the death of Jesus Christ.